Hello and welcome to the Mastering Show podcast. My name is Ian Shepard. I'm a mastering engineer and I run the Production Advice website, helping you get better results recording, mixing and mastering your music. And this week I have a guest. It is Alexei Lukin from Isotope. I hope I pronounced your name correctly. Yeah. Hi, Ian. And nice to be here on the podcast. Perhaps you could start by giving us a quick introduction to who you are and your work at Isotope. I'm Alexei. I'm a principal DSP engineer at Isotope, now part of Native Instruments. I've been with the company for about 20 years. I got to work on RX, Ozone and other products. Over the years, I've also been involved in a few community projects like Rightmark Audio for measurements of sound cards and uh, A to D to A converters and uh, SRC, Infinite Wave Dot. CA, which is the test for quality of sampling rate converters in DAWs. I didn't realize that. That's very cool. Yeah, that's an extremely useful site. I've linked to that uh, many times, actually, in the show notes to the podcast, where pretty much whenever <laughs> sample rate conversion comes up. And of course, SRC is something we're going to dig into later in the show. So yeah, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Um, I just want to say a personal thank you for because I believe Isotope like to call you the godfather of RX. Um, and regular listeners to the show will know that RX is definitely one of my favorite audio applications. It's just like a magic wand in many cases for all kinds of problems, hiss, hum, clicks, distortion, you know, you name it. Thank you. Great to hear. It's like a magic tool. So yeah, I'm very much appreciative of that. The reason for this show is that I recently made two videos talking about intersample peaks and true peak limiting, which are both topics that we've talked about on the, the podcast before. People liked the videos, but there were also some comments saying that they could be confusing for some people. And I agreed with those comments. Um, and one of the people making those comments was Alexi. And since I wanted to do a podcast kind of diving into the details of this topic, and he knows far more about it than I ever will, um, I thought I would ask him to come on the, the show and talk about it. So yeah, Alexi, thanks so much for joining us. I thought maybe we could just start by trying to, because one of the problems with the, the term intersample peak or ISP is that people use it to mean a very wide range of things which are kind of related but subtly different. Right. And I think that's one of the kind of areas that I certainly allowed to be confusing in my videos. I was kind of using the term in, the, in the, the popular sense, if you like, rather than in the technical sense. So maybe we should start off just by talking about, you know, what you understand about an ISP and then maybe some of the other types of things that people call ISPs and why they're different. Sure. Well, intersample peaks are indeed a little bit confusing, but I like to think of intersample peaks in the most general sense. Those peaks are places where the analog waveform just exceeds the level of adjacent digital samples, as simple as that. And when you do the A to D conversion on the analog waveform, the digital samples are formed by just instantaneous measurement of the analog waveform at regular time intervals. So it is not guaranteed at all that those digital samples will coincide in time or in value with the maximums of the analog waveform. And later when the digital waveform is played back in the D to A converter, the converter reconstructs the analog waveform and recovers those maximums that existed in the analog waveform using a sync interpolation, a special kind of interpolation that is correct for D2A conversion. And that allows you to recover the original analog waveform. So as you probably know by now, and most of our listeners do, converters do not 
just work by connecting samples with square waves or straight lines. When they got digital samples, they have to use this special kind of sync interpolation or something similar, which would uh, preserve the spectrum of the signal more accurately. And unfortunately, also sometimes produce those intersampled peaks. Not sometimes, but I should say all the time produce those intersampled peaks. Yeah, I think that's that's a really important point. And I, I also want to just take a little tangent and kind of clearly make the point. Sometimes people say that, oh, when the, the digital signal is converted back to analog, the, the filter somehow smooths out the waveform. I mean, I guess in some senses that is technically true, but I mean, the, the fact is it actually literally recreates the original waveform, right? I mean, right, within the right. limitations of the of the, the bit depth and the sample rate, it is a perfect representation of the original waveform. So the, the smoothed signal, you know, if you look at the kind of stair-step sample representation and then the smooth signal, the smooth signal is actually completely accurate. It is the original signal rebuilt from those samples. Of course, yeah. If you used stair-steps, you would not see any intersample peaking or clipping at all. It would just you know, always be between the digital samples. And even straight lines wouldn't get you any intersampled peaks. Uh, it's the sync interpolation and higher order interpolations uh, used in practical D2E converters that create those intersampled peaks when they play back the digital waveform. Right, absolutely. And so it's completely normal for there to be intersampled peaks. It just means that there are points within the samples where the original waveform went above where the samples are. Um, and yeah, as you say, they happen all the time. And normally that's absolutely fine, except, or the one case where we want to pay particular attention to them is if they actually go above zero dB full scale, which is supposed to be the maximum value of any particular sample. Of course, yeah. I agree that those recovered intersampled peaks are completely normal. They've been present in the original waveform before it was even digitized but they do come as a surprise to audio engineers all the time. And sometimes they are even surprised to G2A converter manufacturers. Some of them do not leave enough headroom for those peaks, and so they could clip up on playback. I believe I'm right in saying that you don't actually get into sample peaks with an originally recorded signal. Would you agree with that? It's, it's always the result of processing, maybe a level lift or some other kind of DSP that causes samples above the original values? They're sort of always there, but they do not show until you do something. They could show as regular digital peaks if you process the signal, like apply an equalizer or sampling rate conversion, or they could show when you convert to analog and they could clip or they could just come out fine without any issue. Right. And, and that's an important point that you mentioned there, which is that often they are revealed, if you like, or we suddenly notice them in the samples where previously they weren't visible in the samples. So you, you have a, a digital audio signal that's peaking at 0 dB FS and you think it's fine, but then you do something that potentially shouldn't even change the sound at all. Like, for example, upsampling it to a higher frequency, right. um, to, to a higher sampling frequency, and suddenly you see all of these extra sample peaks in the waveform. That's something that in my videos I didn't make clear. And it's one of those common things, you know, people tend to talk about all of these things as intersample peaks, but I think more strictly we could call those kind of peaks something like DSP overshoots, right? The process of carrying out some kind of signal processing, even something that's transparent like sample rate conversion, actually involves manipulating the sample values and suddenly 
the intersample peaks that were implied in the signal beforehand, you could predict them, but you don't necessarily see them in the sample values, right. suddenly show up. Is that a reasonable way to put it? Yeah, absolutely. They just become visible. They become from intersample peaks, they become regular digital sample peaks through one of the processes like sampling rate conversion or even as simple as equalizer. Uh, they could reveal those intersampled peak levels and convert them to sampled peak levels. And that's where they become visible. That's where they often clip. Right. Excellent. And so we're going to come back to DSP overshoot peaks um, in a little while. But I think before we get to that, maybe we should just talk about the intersample peaks or true peaks, as they're sometimes called. Most people now know about kind of R128, the, the the loudness standard, the international standard for measuring loudness, and the fact that it, instead of using dBFS, decibels full scale, it measures peaks using dBTP, which stands for true peak. To my understanding, those are an attempt to predict what the intersample peaks might be to give us a warning, a heads up, if there are going to be signals that might be sensitive to digital signal processing or being played back on a DAC without enough headroom. Um, maybe you can say a little bit about how those tree peak meters work. Yeah, the standard that you mentioned, R128, I actually call it BS1770, which is the same thing, but mm -hmm. uh, it tries to raise awareness of the issue. I know a few early papers by TC Electronic about the issue maybe a decade or two decades ago, uh, which brought those intersampled peaks to attention especially in the context of, you know, D2A converter manufacturing. And uh, it's been known for a while that they're sometimes a problem, sometimes they clip. So the standard tries to switch focus from measuring digital sample peak levels to measuring those reconstructed analog waveform levels. And so they've introduced the notion of true peaks, which is almost the same as, you know, oversampled peak levels. Um, and this true peak standard says that before measuring peak levels, you need to oversample your waveform. You need to oversample at least by four times and then uh, measure the peak levels of this oversampled waveform. And that's what you should show on your peak meter or the peak value readout in your DAW. They have prescribed a certain kind of oversampling filter, a linear phase oversampling filter. Simple enough and short enough, but efficient for implementation. Um, unfortunately, the standard is a little bit loose when it came to you know, telling that this is the only way you should measure your true peaks. The standard says loosely that this is the minimal oversampling ratio that you should use, but you could use more than four times oversampling. And so different meters, different manufacturers of those true peak meters may use their discretion at uh, choosing the oversampled ratio and also in choosing the particular oversampling filter. And this is why many meters measure slightly differently. But the essence is still the same. You oversample your waveform and uh, you measure peak levels of this oversampled waveform and report it at true peak levels. In spirit, this is all very similar to the intersampled peaks we've been talking about. With intersampled peaks, you are at the mercy of the D2A converter. It could use any kind of oversampling filter, including you know minimum phase oversampling filter, which could overshoot even more than the typical linear phase filter. Um, but the, in the R128 standard, they do recommend the linear phase oversampling filter. 
Yeah, and and that's that's a question I often get is, you know, okay, well, so I'm I used a true peak limiter or I made sure that my true peaks only reached a certain level, minus one or whatever that might be, and then I, I played it back in a different piece of software or using a different meter, and suddenly I was seeing that they were getting up to minus 0.7. Um, so I think that's probably the reason for those small discrepancies is just different meters measuring those peaks in slightly different ways. And I know you've worked on a, a paper for the AS to suggest a, a meter design that avoids that problem, which I think would would be it would be great if everybody implemented that and it would uh, make things a lot simpler. But I mean, another thing that I've noticed is if you um, increase the oversampling rate, so say from four times to eight times, you can again see different measurements on the on the peak meter as a result of that um, and I know that that is basically because you know when we when you sample the digital audio you're slicing it up and taking measurements at certain points in time and we've talked about the fact that the intersample peaks can occur in between those moments in time um, and they're they're perfectly captured by the original samples but we just don't see them in the sample data right. so when you oversample the signal you're basically adding extra slices to like if you do a four times oversampling you're adding three more data points in between every original sample and trying to figure out what accurate values for those samples would be so then the peak value of those new points is going to be more accurate than the original one just because you have you have more dots on the curve of the graph basically um so please correct me if i got any of that wrong but i'm also curious to know whether there is actually any kind of limit in terms of, you know, how much could these intersample peaks increase? Do they just keep getting bigger the, the higher you oversample? How does it work? Uh, that's a great analogy of adding more points to the same curve. And uh, as long as you know the curve, you could add as many points and uh, there will be a limit. But uh, sometimes with digital processing or with digital synthesis even, you can create signals that are not even possible in the analog world. Uh, there are some specially crafted test signals where you can overshoot those true peak meters or intersample peak meters a lot. Uh, with a standard R128 true peak meter uh, specification, you can create a signal that makes it overshoot by just over six decibels, uh, which is a lot and very <laughs> uncommon for any real world music. Yeah, I think that the most I've ever seen in practice is probably about 3.5 dB yeah. Uh, true peak for me but yeah yeah uh, usually the more high frequencies in a signal like if you have a burst of high frequencies like a hi-hat or maybe you know a tambourine or whatever uh, that's where there is a lot of potential for true peaks uh, above one or two decibels that are more typical but yeah some oversampling filters of other meters may produce even more than six decibels like isotope rx can overshoot by maybe seven decibels on the same specially crafted signal but that's not typical i'd say that maybe one or two decibels are typical overshoots you see right and, and so that leads nicely onto the next question because i mean if, if i was causing clipping of two or three db as part of a, the mastering process or even the recording or mixing process, I would be concerned. I would want to control that using a limiter or um, just by reducing the level because 2 to 3 dBs clipping can sound really unpleasant on some signals. I mean, I'm thinking of things like piano or, you know, the human voice, for example, or, or anything really that's kind of got a fairly pure, without too much noise in the, in the frequency spectrum. Um, so... But I often hear people saying that, oh, intersample peaks, true peaks, 
are not a problem. They're not audible. Um, one of the things that I was investigating in the video that I made was to try and show whether or not that was the case and give an example. I slightly clouded the water by using an example where I was encoding to AAC, a lossy encoding format. So I was producing DSP overshoot peaks rather than pure intersample peaks. But I'm curious to know, you know, in your work at Isotope, in your experience, would you say that intersample peaks are a problem? Are they just a theoretical issue or are they something that we should be concerned about? Well, it depends. Intersample peaks are not a problem until they actually clip. And once they clip, you can hear it for sure. Um, the good news is that most of the intersample peaks are created by high frequency bursts like hi-hats or other percussive instruments. And uh, the, this is where the, most of the clipping happens. And it can absolutely you know, intermodulate other instruments and get into the lower frequency region where it could be audible. The good news is that you know, piano or other slow melodic instruments uh, usually do not create a lot of intersample clipping. And so they could still clip, but by a fraction of a decibel. And so it would not be as catastrophic. Uh, but at the same time, you are much more uh, sensitive to clipping on those tonal harmonic instruments. Um, so it's a balance, but absolutely intersample peaks could clip uh, an old D2A converter that does not have enough headroom above zero dBFS. Most modern converters should probably have this headroom. Um, but it's not just D2A conversion. As you mentioned, you know, the digital overload or digital overshoot happens. Uh, you could convert intersampled peaks to real digital peaks by just, you know, applying something like an SRC uh, sampling rate conversion. And if you are in a fixed point file format, like 24 bits or 16 bits, uh, this would clip if your file has been normalized or if your file has been brick wall limited against zero dbfs uh, when there is a lot of peaks banging against the same threshold chances are high that any kind of processing could increase or decrease randomly some of those peaks and those that are randomly increased uh, could clip yeah I, th I think that's another point where there's there's a lot of confusion as you say th the good news is that intersample peaks don't really matter unless they clip something, um, which could be a digital to analog converter, or it could be some form of digital signal processing. In the videos that I made, I deliberately chose a musical example that in the original PCM version of the file had true peaks that hit, I think, plus three uh, dB true peak. So the sample values were hitting zero, but the true peaks were overshooting by two to three dB at some point. If the gain of that signal was reduced, then those true peaks, even when reconstructed in a digital-to-analog converter, would not get above 0 dBFS um, if they were reduced by 2 or 3 dB. So then they would start being a problem. And it's in my mind, it's kind of similar to, you know, these days, we're, well, when I started mastering, everything was fixed point. So I remember my, the first digital desk I used was 24-bit, and that was a big deal because I had... Uh, eight more bits than most other people were working with in digital at that point. But now we have 32-bit floating point. And the great thing about the floating point file format, which we've talked about on the, the podcast before, is that it can safely preserve 
values above zero db full scale in fact it's got hundreds of dbs of of headroom so providing you either control those peaks with a limiter or reduce the level at some point you won't cause any audible problems and the same thing applies to intersample peaks i mean we started out by saying that we don't have really have to worry about intersample peaks anywhere except where they go above zero db right. fs but you could have a digital analog converter that doesn't have enough headroom and yes certain situations uh cause files to be reduced to fixed point so 16 or 24 bits and in those cases the i like to use the term baked in that the clipping gets baked in so just to give a, a common example if you have a logic project that's running at for example 48k and you bring in a piece of audio that is regularly hitting zero dbfs that has lots of intersample peaks uh showing up on the meters logic will sample rate convert that file for you to 48k but it will then immediately save it to 24-bit fixed point and at that point all of those sample values that would otherwise have been above zero get clipped off and then you are adding actual real clipping to the audio signal and at that point even if you reduce the gain people are going to hear this problem and that's what i demonstrated in the video that i made um and as i say i muddied the water slightly by talking by those are dsp overshoots um and they weren't really caused by the intersample peaks i think maybe that's another thing that people mentioned to me as a possible source of confusion um intersample peaks don't cause these problems it's more like they are a warning that there could be a potential problem um yeah and i think the one thing that i'll say um just before we move on to the next point is that you know, as we say, they, these things can be audible. And the whole point of that video was to show that they they were audible. One interesting thing was that they didn't sound quite the way I expected. Because we were adding more clipping to the file, I expected it to sound crunchier and more distorted. Um, in fact, the version where the, the intersample peaks were preserved actually sounded a bit more lively and exciting to me. Whereas the version where those peaks got clipped just sounded duller and less interesting, less involving to me which was just something kind of i mean that could be purely specific to that one example that i had i'd have to do lots more testing to know but it, it was interesting that it didn't sound the way that i expected in that case right i think i've heard about this before yeah dull not exciting yeah absolutely okay so we've talked a lot about intersample peaks the question is how to control them you know we can reduce the gain but then if people want loudness that's not going to be an option that they're happy with um, one of the options that we have is true peak limiters, which are limiters that are aware of the potential for true peaks, intersample peaks, and aim to reduce them. So I think we should talk about the two different cases separately. You know, how effectively can intersample peaks be controlled by a true peak limiter? And will that then protect you from DSP overshoot? Well, true peak limiters oversample the waveform before applying the limiter and then they downsample it back. There are a few possible variations here. For example, you could only oversample the side chain, generate the limiting envelope, the amplitude envelope for the signal and apply it to the original signal so that you don't oversample the signal itself. But uh, the essence is similar. And uh, when you apply a true peak limiter this way, you are trying to avoid true peaks and once you play this limited record through the d2a converter 
it may apply a different kind of oversampling filter. So you may still end up with a little bit of true peaks uh, or intersampled peaks, I should say, and still maybe a little bit of clipping if the converter does not have that headroom. Uh, the point of true peak limiting is to stay compliant with those loudness specs. Those loudness specs do expect a strict you know, threshold in true peaks, whether it's minus one or minus two dB true peak. They set the margin intentionally lower than zero dB true peak to accommodate for possible variations in either measurement of true peaks themselves or possible variations downstream, uh, like D2A conversion may have different oversampling filters, or even to accommodate for extra peaking due to lossy conversion downstream. This is for true peak limiters. Uh, there are multiple limiters that do oversampling, but are not built as true peak limiters. Uh, and those limiters are also helpful. They also aim at eliminating intersampling peaks or true peaks, but they're just not made necessarily compliant with a standard. And whether one is better than the other is kind of a subject to debate. If you need to be compliant with a standard, then yes, you have to use the true peak limiter. But at the same time, the standard itself and its oversampling filter from R128, it does have a little bit of passband ripple, plus minus 0.1 decibel. And uh, this passband ripple could be affecting the results of limiting for the true peak limiter. Just a regular oversampling limiter could be preferable in terms of sound if you don't necessarily need to be loudness compliant uh, with a standard. Yeah, that's really interesting as well, because for a while now I've been using uh, the Fab Filter, sorry, <laughs> uh, Pro-L limiter, um, which enables you to you can choose to either enable true peak limiting or not and oversample it or not independently. And I've been running right. it uh, in oversampling since forever um, because it prevents the possibility of aliasing, which again is a topic that we've, we've talked about kind of on the show before. We yeah. can maybe talk about it in a little bit more detail briefly. But, and what I noticed is that, yes, the true peak meter would, if I set the threshold at minus one or the output ceiling at minus one, yeah, I'd see peaks up to minus 0.8 or minus 0.7 occasionally. And that didn't really concern me because I'm not trying to comply with a standard. I just want to leave enough peak headroom to avoid problems later on in the process. I think that's something you touched on there and that's worth kind of reinforcing that point. For me, the fact that we have different ways of measuring true peaks um, and different implementations of D2A converters and all the rest of it means that for me, limiting right up to zero true peak or aiming to get you know peaks at zero but no intersample peaks feels like a bit of a red herring i'd much prefer to have well for me people listening to the show will know i recommend a db of headroom but certainly half a db of true peak headroom uh just to just to be on the safe side really um and again that can be a problem for people who need super loud masters where every half db is important to them you can get into a debate about whether that's a real concern given that most things these days are, are normalized or have being adjusted in level in some way anyway. This is a great point about aliasing, Ian. I just wanted to mention that uh, aliasing is probably the biggest reason why you should be using oversampling in a limiter. Even if you don't have to be compliant, uh, aliasing is not good and uh, oversampling should be solving it. Uh, Tropic limiting may partially help with aliasing, but not necessarily all the way. 
So it does oversample maybe four times, but also with a sort of slightly weird filter. So it may help with aliasing, but not fully eliminate aliasing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think we've mentioned it a few times. Maybe can you give a brief description for people who aren't familiar with the term what aliasing is and, and why it's bad? Aliasing is creation of new components, uh, tonal components in a signal that are not related to the tonal components present in the signal, but are instead related to the sampling rate of the signal. Say you had a tone at 1K, so you had a 1K, 2K, 3K harmonics, uh, and if you pass the signal through some kind of analog limiter that does not have aliasing issues, you would probably only see some modification of the amplitudes of those harmonics. Or if you had several uh, different fundamental frequencies in your signal, you could have some intermodulation distortion. But aliasing is uh, when you get those surprise tones, like you had a 1K tone, but you got a 325 hertz uh, tonal component that would sound awful and not be related to your original signal, but it would be some sort of interplay between the fundamental frequency of the signal and the sampling rate of the file. Uh, that's what I refer to as aliasing uh, during processing. And it can happen during any nonlinear processing, starting from uh, wave shaping to dynamic processing, like compression and especially limiting. Uh, limiting is more prone to aliasing because it's faster and so uh, it can create more of the harmonic and non-harmonic distortion, including aliasing. Right. And if I understand it correctly, it's it's generating harmonics that actually extend above the, well, the Nyquist frequency. Yes. And then folding those harmonics back into the audible range. Right. And, and it's, that's, a, that's a characteristically digital side effect. I mean, another thing that I have heard people say is that, for example, running something like a limiter with oversampling enabled Obviously, the whole point of the oversampling is trying to understand what the original analog waveform was more accurately right. and therefore to do a better job of limiting it. Um, so in that sense, a digital limiter with oversampling enabled sounds, in air quotes, more analog. Um, whereas if you disable the oversampling and you don't have true peak limiting, you're almost guaranteed to get a certain amount of aliasing distortion being added to the signal. It's going to depend on the signal and what the processing is. But that is, by definition, a purely digital artifact. So for me, in a world where everybody is kind of looking for that analog sound, I kind of feel like, why would you not run oversampling on a, a limiter or any other kind of processing that in, introduces extra distortion? Because I think distortion is the most common source of uh, those extra harmonics. Would you agree with that? I agree. I agree with this. Excellent. Um, the other interesting thing is that um, I got into quite a heated debate on Gearspace um, with people about the distinctions between oversampling and true peak limiting and regular sample limiting. For me, I'm concerned that people are testing these limiters in a way that is kind of unfair on, on the limiters, if you like. Um, what I see a lot of people doing is running a limiter that maybe didn't used to have true peak limiting as a feature. They'll run something through, they'll get a sound that they're happy with, and then they'll enable true peak limiting and decide that they don't like the result. And to me, that's not a fair test because what's happening is by enabling true peak limiting or oversampling, you're making the limiter aware of extra peaks that it's not aware of by 
just looking at the sample data. And therefore, understandably, it does more limiting to control those peaks more effectively. So suddenly, it's by enabling those options, it's like kind of lowering the threshold, if you like, or just telling the limiter to do more limiting. So if they've already pushed it as hard as they would otherwise want to do, hearing more limiting, it's almost guaranteed they're not going to like the result. Whereas for me, a much fairer way of testing a limiter would be to enable oversampling or true peak limiting to begin with, get a sound that you like, and then experiment with disabling them. And if at that point, suddenly it sounds way, way better, well, then maybe you genuinely don't like the sound of the, the true peak or the oversampling limiting. But in my experience, quite often it sounds very similar, maybe fractionally different, um, but I'm completely happy with the true peak and the oversampled result. And if you choose to kind of go the other way and say, well, but I, I want that extra level and I, I just, you know, I need that amount of limiting and the true peak limiter won't let me give it. You're basically saying, okay, I have to accept in that case that I'm going to get some extra aliasing distortion um, as, as a result. Is, is that accurate to say? Yes, this is actually a great point about fairness of comparing limiters. Uh, I always say that once you are comparing different limiters, you need to make sure that the threshold and ceiling are set to the same exact decibel level, but also that the resulting RMS is exactly the same. Um, otherwise, your limiters just have you know different ballistics, different behavior, and uh, it's not fair to compare. Um, I try to make sure that the RMS of the resulting limited signal matches within one hundredth of a decibel before you know making judgments about the level of distortion of this limiter or that limiter. Unfortunately, it's not easy to directly compare this with true peak on versus true peak off. You just you know need to accept that you get aliasing in one case and not in the other case, um, but just paying attention to the RMS of the record definitely helps uh, you understand that one of the limiters is working harder than the other one. And so it has, uh, you know, more chances of ducking your transients. Uh, but at the same time, it preserves those true peaks better. If you want to make the other limiter equal to a true peak limiter, you, you know, have to take measures. You have to use a different ceiling or a different threshold or maybe change ballistics, but you have to make sure that the RMS is roughly the same in the result. That's my criterion. Excellent. Hopefully that's, that's helpful for people. So um, one approach that I've seen people suggest to try and get the best of both worlds is to apply true peak limiting as a separate stage so they might run it through their favorite limiter in terms of getting the sound that they're looking for and that may not guarantee that they've adhered to the true peak spec that they are interested in so then uh, they add another true peak limiter afterwards now of course this depends on the design of the limiters because some of them like for example as you mentioned you can try and detect intersample peaks at the at the detection stage where you're deciding what the limiter is going to do and you can try and do it at the processing stage to make sure that whatever you do with the signal doesn't result in any peaks. You could do either of those or both, uh, and different limiters approach it in different ways. Do you have an opinion about what the, the best way to approach this is? I don't have an opinion on what the best way is, but I certainly think that uh, if someone is scared of the sound of true peak limiting, you could apply an oversampling limiter that you like without true peak limiting enabled. And then you could see how much exactly limiting is happening once you run another limiter that is true peak limiting after the first one. And you will probably see only a fraction of a decibel change 
And at that point, you can begin to question yourself whether that fraction of a decibel can change the sound as much, whether it's important to you. But um, once you have run the oversampled limiter, you are already very, very close to hitting the true peak spec just with that. Uh, and any minimal post-processing for true peak limiting uh, should not change the sound too much. It's just you know a small fraction of a decibel. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one option that we haven't mentioned yet, which I guess is worth putting out there, is you could run the signal through, figure out what that overshoot is, and then just manually adjust the level down by 0.3 dB. Yeah, that's a great point. Needs to be. Yeah, you can set the ceiling slightly lower or just, you know, apply gain. Yeah, and in fact, there's another point I wanted to make, another possible source of confusion in my original videos. And I think it's quite an important one. You know, we've talked a lot about True Peak limiting to um, conform with, say, broadcast specifications and other specs that we might be asked to to comply with. One big source of confusion is that it will not prevent DSP overshoot caused by lossy encoding. So, for example, the music that I tested in my video had true peaks going or intersample peaks going up to plus three. If I had just put a true peak limiter on that, those intersample peaks would have vanished. But if I then tried to encode that signal to 128 kilobits per second AAC or MP3 or whatever it might be, the DSP overshoot would still occur, right? right? And this is related to that point that I made that the DSP overshoot is not caused by the intersample peaks. They can be a useful warning signal that we're at risk of incurring that kind of problem. But the, the processing involved in lossy encoding is so aggressive that it's inevitable that there's going to be an increase in peak levels, that the, the DSP is going to overshoot in that way, um, which is kind of slightly counterintuitive. You know, if you, for, for me, uh, if I see intersample peaks at plus two, I know there's a good chance that if I just did an AAC encode of that, I would see sample peaks coming out the other end also at plus two. So it feels as though the intersample peaks and the DSP overshoots are related. But if we wound the data rate down to say 96 kilobits per second that gets used on mobile or even 64 kilobits per second, those DSP overshoots would get even bigger because even more processing is happening to the signal um, and it changes the waveform and it changes the sam sample values even more aggressively. Right. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. Uh, we know that any processing expands the bit depth of the signal, but we do not often think that any processing can also increase the peak levels of the signal likewise. Uh, even an innocent process like a low-cut equalizer can do this. Some people blame a phase shift or a ripple in the frequency response of the equalizer, but in fact, this increase in peak levels can happen even with a linear phase equalizer with a fully flat pass band. It's just, you know, the processing. And if we talk about loss encoders like MP3 or AAC, uh, I think of them more like, you know, adding noise to the signal. So if you take a signal that's hard limited to a certain ceiling and add noise to the signal, would it clip? Absolutely. It's not just, you know, intersample clipping. It's just adding noise to the signal, the quantization noise of loss encoding. And this noise is related to intersample peaks in level, but it's not directly related. Intersample peaks could be an indicator of how much extra DSP overload you might get after loss encoding, but it's not the uh, only indicator. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's and that's I think that's the other thing that I th- think people need to understand um, in particular, because all of this stuff becomes a bigger problem when you push the loudness very high. You know, the higher you push the loudness, the more the peak levels are going to be basically hitting that that ceiling, whether you know, whether that means clipping or whether it means limiting or whatever process it is that prevents it from going over. And the higher you go, the more risk of overshoot um, into sample peaks and DSP overshoot. I like um, John Tidy's analogy of this. Nobody fills a cup of coffee right up to the brim because although it will safely hold that quantity of coffee, as soon as you try and move it, you're going to slop it all over your hand or possibly your <laughs> the thing you're trying to read or your, your iPad or whatever it is you're working with. Um, so whenever we pour a cup of coffee, we leave a little bit of sloppage room at the top of the mug uh, to compensate for that. Um, and I always feel the same thing should be applied to digital audio um, for all the reasons that we've talked about, you know, possible inaccuracies in the way that True Peaks are being measured or just discrepancies, not even necessarily inaccuracies, the possibility of processing further down the line. So for me, leaving a little bit of headroom, as I say, is is really important. And I'm curious to know what other best practices you might suggest for avoiding all of these problems. So that kind of brings me back to that last question about the best practice. In, in your opinion, what would be some guidelines for people to follow um, in terms of how much should they worry about intersample peaks? Do you agree that maybe a dB of headroom, which is recommended by the R128 spec and by broadcasters, is sensible? For me, it means not going for extreme loudness. Um, what's your opinion? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I agree that a decibel is sufficient uh, for all practical purposes. Of course, you could craft a signal that could overshoot by more than a decibel. I can craft a signal that can overshoot by an any number of decibels, uh, as long as a sufficiently steep oversampling filter is used. But uh, in practice, such signals do not happen in real-world music. Even if there is a minor clip or two in a song, you would not notice it because you are already providing a decibel of headroom. If there is overshoot even more than a decibel, it's probably very brief and uh, likely not audible because it happens during a particularly loud high-frequency excursion that uh, it's just, you know, such a transient that it's okay to clip it a little bit. What I wanted to say is that, you know, this entire topic of uh, intersample peaks and true peaks and overshooting, clipping, is definitely confusing and counterintuitive in many ways. Um, like, for example, people think that if the EQ is cutting only, it's not supposed to increase peak levels, but it does. Uh, it can only guarantee that RMS levels are decreasing if it's a cut-only equalizer, but not the peak levels. And now that loudness wars are mostly over, or are they over in... I think they are mostly over in streaming. Uh, there is no point in, you know, propping a file against 0 dBFS or 0 dB TP anymore. Uh, you definitely have a lot of headroom there, but uh, CDs are still happening and digital distribution is still happening. So uh, the loudness wars are almost over, but not quite there yet. And uh, when you need to maximize loudness, you would be watching out for a little bit of extra headroom. I think even since CDs were made in 1980s, uh, since CDs were created in 1980s, uh, engineers knew to leave a little bit of ceiling. Uh, one of the first Waves ultra maximizers had that ceiling, which they recommended to 
set to minus 0.3 dB uh, in their manual, if I am correct. But now we know more about true peaks, we know more about intersampled peaks, and now we use loss encoding a lot more. So one decibel sounds like a good trade-off between good sound and still having it loud. Excellent. Thank you. I, sadly, I, I don't think we can say that the loudness wars are over yet. Um, I think um, I think it's definitely true to say that nobody is really hearing the influence of it in the same way, you know, or far fewer people. But uh, people are definitely still aiming for super loud masters. And people on the show have heard me say this before. My own personal guidelines are to not exceed minus 10 LUFS short term. If you do that, then a dB of true peak headroom is definitely sufficient to uh, help you comply with any of the regular standards that you might need to, and also ensure that you're not likely to get any significant DSP overshoot from lossy encoding at kind of normal data rates. Even at quite low data rates, um, if you get a few peaks, they're going to be occasional, and as Alexi says, they're, they're not going to be audible. So I understand the pressure on people to, to deliver masters at you know, minus eight, minus seven LUFS, which means that the short term is going up to minus six at some points or even higher. I guess the, the thing to, the final thing to say is if that's what you're trying to achieve, and particularly if you choose not to use true peak limiting or oversampled limiting and not to leave any peak headroom, there are going to be consequences to that. You know, they won't always be audible. It'll depend on the material. Um, and it may be that your client is completely happy with it. But I think understanding this stuff is essential, which is why I wanted to do this episode to try and help people with that and to clear up any possible confusion from the, the videos that I made. I, I'll do a follow-up video as well for anybody who prefers to to watch this stuff rather than listen to it. But um, if, you've, if you've sat through 45 plus minutes of us chatting about this already, I probably don't need to and probably don't want to either. Alexi, thank you so much for uh, coming on and uh, sharing your knowledge about this. I really appreciate you uh, making sure that I get all the technical details right. Of course, anybody who is interested to hear the products of Alexi's work should head over to isotope.com, in particular, Isotope RX. We've done episodes on restoration in the past where we talk about that. Yeah, it's great to know that you're also involved in things like the, the Infinite Wave site, um, where people can find out the, the quality offered by sample rate conversion algorithms, because whilst you might expect that they would all be the same, they are not. Um, although I, I think it's true to say that modern sample rate converters tend to be a lot better than in the past. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. And uh, I think that SRC.InfiniteWave website has been one contributing factor to this competition. Um, it's been my pleasure, Ian. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Thanks also to John Tidy for editing and mixing the episode. Thanks to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music. And thanks for listening. Thank you.